All we have needed, his hand has provided, because great is his faithfulness to us. Please take your Bible to Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6, and we'll start reading in verse 10 of Exodus chapter 6. The word of the Lord given to us, Exodus 6.10. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Sheol, the sons of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, Uziel. The years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushai. These are the clans of the Levites, according to their generations. Amram took as his wife, Jochebed, his father's sister. And she bore him Aaron and Moses. The years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Ishar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uzael, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab, and the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Isser, Elkanah, and Abiaseth. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Kutael. And she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their host. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, 
The Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. So Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of the land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old. Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. This concludes the reading of God's word. Would he bless it in the congregation today? You can be seated. Children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. There's a puzzling statement right away in chapter 7. Moses will be a god to Pharaoh. Um, I want you to know that in the original Hebrew, there's no article. It's not one of. It literally says in Exodus chapter 7, verse 1, Moses, you will be God to Pharaoh. And Abraham or and Aaron will be your prophet. Wow. I, uh, I have a practice of listening to other preachers preach texts that I'm going through. And I heard one particular preacher share a story that relates to chapter 7. Um... There are dozens of jokes that begin this way. The Pope was riding in a car with his chauffeur, and he had long wanted to be able to drive a car, being chauffeured around all the time. He longed to be able to drive an automobile, so he convinces the chauffeur to let him drive. He was so excited that he speeds in and out of traffic, finally coming across law enforcement. They pull him over. They approach the driver's window. He rolls the window down. The officer stops, goes back to his squad car, gets on the radio, and he says, there is someone important that I've pulled over. I'm not sure yet who he is, but the Pope is his chauffeur. When I read in chapter 7, verse 1, God is going to make Moses God to Pharaoh. Well, I don't know who Moses is in this story, but I know who God is. And this chapter, like Exodus, is about the greatness of God. The title that I've given this is God's Revelation. It is the revelation of a plan, for sure, but it is more than that. It is the revelation of God himself, particularly the revelation of God's name. Now that starts all the way back in Exodus chapter 2, verse 6. All the way back in Exodus chapter 2, verse 6, we see Yahweh say for the first time to Moses, 
this is my name. And that continues in uh, ongoing detail, in ongoing revelation. Moses, this is who I am. And we are blessed to be able to have that preserved revelation today and to be able to study it again. In fact, God has said that by the Exodus, he is going to make it known what it means to be the Lord. Jehovah Jireh, the the one who rules, the, the one who is strong and mighty and able to save his people. But in Exodus chapter 6, verse 9, we were are we reminded that Moses and Aaron, the, the messengers of God, are being strictly denied. They have gone from God to do as God had said, and they have experienced disappointment, experienced failure. Today, we'll study chapter 6, verse 13, through 7, and verse 7. And this passage, this text is going to outline for us like this. As God is revealing himself, he is going to say to his servants, and we hear him say it, and it fits us, God is going to say, who has commissioned you? How has he prepared you? And who will accomplish the commission? So we're going to see it come out in those three main points. Who has commissioned you? And that echoes in this room, right? Who has commissioned us? How has he who commissioned you prepared you? And who ultimately does hope of success rest in? And these three points are imperative for us, his people. So let's pray, and then we'll look at those three in that order. Father, I'm thankful this morning for the opportunity to be about your word and worship in the adoration of this revelation of yourself. We humble ourselves to Scripture. We sit quietly as it's read. We give our attention carefully to it because we're thankful to have received it, to have your spirit that brings light to it, the way that it shapes and transforms us. And we pray not just for our place in your word, for our study, but this morning, I pray for other messengers all over the city who are likewise standing as humble under-shepherds of Christ and speaking the words of life. I pray for the church plant out in Burnhamwood and for Josh Wikes as he stands and teaches and does this enduring work of proclaiming Christ, of teaching the gospel, of heralding the glory of our great God. And so I pray for him, his joy, his endurance, clarity. Like like myself, I pray that those things that are personally relevant to me would be pushed aside and the emphasis and the theme of your word would be fed carefully to your children. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. So these three points. Who gave you the commission? How have you been prepared for the commission? 
and who is it that guarantees its completion? So let's start in verse 13. Who does the commission come from? Last week, we already considered verses 10 through 12. So let's pick up in verse 13. The Lord spoke to Moses. This is is immediately following Moses' repeated objection. I am of uncircumcised lips. You might remember last week we talked about that is probably Moses drawing attention to the campsite where God seemed to have almost executed um, uh, death penalty for Moses not observing the sign of the covenant. And so Moses brings that up and says, I'm reminded in all of this that I am unprepared for such things. I'm unfit. I can't. I can't do this. And then God says, he gave them a charge about the people of Israel. He charges them and says, you are my servants. You will do this. Go speak to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. You ever find yourself reading about Bible characters and shaking your head and thinking, what disappointments? I suppose that could happen here of Moses. But I don't think that's a really honest reading of Scripture because I see a lot of myself in Moses. I see the disheartened response to failure. And there's been failure everywhere. Moses has gone to the people. And the people had believed and gotten really excited. Then he goes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, no, and I'm going to double down on the hardship of slavery. And then the the foreman and the people turn on Moses and Aaron. And Moses turns on God and blames God. You sent me here, and you're not doing anything you said. Moses is seeing failure while he thinks, I'm doing what I'm told. Why is it not succeeding? Moses is going to have a success syndrome that's going to plague him all the way to the end of his life. Results. Things aren't happening the way Moses thinks they should happen. And rather than shaking my head and going, what's wrong with Moses? I go, ooh, I think I can learn from that. Because I think that's something I would struggle with. In the middle of all of this disappointment, this is where God sends Moses back to Pharaoh. Moses objects we can sympathize. But what we need then is to know the issue is not the probability of success. The issue is the God who sends us. The issue in front of us is not probability of success, but the issue is the God who sends. Okay? You have shared the good news of Jesus Christ with an aunt or an uncle dozens of times. And statistically, you could convince yourself the probability of success the next time is almost zero. But the issue is not the probability of success. The issue is the God who sends us. To help us understand that really clearly, let's think about the prophet Ezekiel. Let's think about the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 3, God tells Ezekiel, you are not sent to the people of foreign speech or of new language, but you're sent to the house of Israel, not to the people of foreign speech. Certainly, if I did send you to foreigners, they would listen. But you're supposed to go to Israel. 
and they're not going to listen. Because all the house of Israel have a hard heart and a stubborn heart. That is a commissioning service, right, for a missionary? All right, you're going to go to this people group, and no one from those people group ever believes because they're really hard-hearted. I remember years ago, as a young pastor, sitting down in a group of three or four pastors, and they were talking about mission trips and mission work. And, and they were commenting that someone had head, was heading to Europe. And they kind of shook their head and said, oh, Europe is such a hard place. They really should go somewhere that is much more responsive to the gospel. So if, if God's commissioning people to go somewhere where people are going to listen better, don't send them to Pharaoh. If God is commissioning his prophet Ezekiel to go, don't send him to the hard-hearted Israel. Send him somewhere else. So that's in Ezekiel chapter 3. Now, you're probably a little familiar with Ezekiel chapter 37. In Ezekiel 36, God had promised, made a covenant, a new covenant, that he would take hard stone hearts and put in its place soft hearts of flesh. In Ezekiel 36, God promised he would do this. Ezekiel 3, he tells Ezekiel, uh, go be a missionary in a place where you'll see no results. Ezekiel 36, he says, I can do great things in the heart of people. And then in Ezekiel 37, we have the account of the valley of dry bones. God places Ezekiel before the valley, and God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? What do you say? <laughs> Ezekiel, go to people that are never going to believe. Now, listen, you need to understand, I can do great things. And here's all the death. Can these bones live? And Ezekiel answers the only way that's appropriate. He says, God, you know. He says, I, I don't know. I don't know. But God, you know. Then he says to me, preach over these bones. Say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these dry bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews upon you and it shall become flesh and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. That is the God who sends Moses. The charge has come from God. The charge has been in the context of the revelation, these people have hard heart. Pharaoh will refuse when you give him my word. Moses knew this. But he's not living it. He's stumbling under the temptation of doubt that the mission could have positive results. Who has given the charge? Who has given us a charge to go and proclaim deliverance? God has. He has given us the charge. The church is not commissioned to go to those places where hearts are responsive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church is commissioned to go everywhere. For those his people who know and walk by faith. They go willingly to places of unlikely converts. 
I think about our friends heading to the east this winter because they believe in the one who has commissioned them, not the fertile soil of the place they go. I think of so many of our fellow servants who are all over the world in very hard places, places where the gospel is not only inconvenient, but the gospel represents a significant lifelong oppression from your friends and family. But they go, and what makes them go? It's not delusion. It's not recklessness with success. It's faith in the God who commissions, not the probability of success. 1 Corinthians 1, we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews, and it's foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We know that the message of Christ is often rejected, but we preach because we know the power of the God who commissions us. I have a good friend who is ministering currently in Mexico, and it's staggering to try to keep up with the fruit that's being produced in Mexico. It's a desperate people ready to hear the hope of Jesus Christ. And it's hard for me even to like, keep track of how much conversion and church building there is going on in near Mexico City. I have another friend from college who ministers in various ways in Iran. And that's a very different mission. Why would the fellow who's ministering to Iranians not say, whoa, whoa, I am of uncircumcised lips. This is not working. I should go with also his friend to Mexico City. Amazing things are happening. Why would he not do that? Because we're not pursuing reasonable success. We're pursuing faithful obedience to the one who's commissioned us. We are sent to every nation. John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Who commissioned Moses? Almighty God. Who commissions us? Almighty God. Now, the second question for the text is, but are we prepared the way Moses was prepared? Or was Moses prepared? And that's where we get into this genealogy. The genealogy. Um, we might wonder, why is there a genealogy right here? This genealogy, I'm going to walk through it quickly. I'm not going to do a historical background check on every person listed in the genealogy. But there are at least seven really good reasons why a genealogy would land right here. Okay, for us, it might seem like this is a, a, an interruption in the story. And that's probably because uh, of a cultural divide. Um, is Moses of the right station to do the thing he's commissioned to do? And that's really important to people in certain cultures. Maybe to you. If you had someone come to you, maybe, maybe you, you call a plumber, and the plumber comes over, and you say, tell me about your plumber pedigree. 
Do you come from a long line of plumbers? Maybe that is important to you. That's sort of the thing the first audience would have thought about Moses and Aaron. Are you really qualified? Tell me a little bit about where you come from in Israel. That's what this genealogy does. It tells us where Moses and Aaron come from in Israel. The original reader has been wondering, are these two appropriate? Just who exactly are Moses and Aaron? Okay, notice the genealogy is bookended. Verse 13, we already, we already considered. I am the one sending you. Go and tell him what I tell you to do. Then look at verse 26 and 27. You'll find a, a longer repeat of verse 13. And he is saying, go and do this. These are the Aaron, and, in verse 26, Aaron and Moses, of whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their host. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. And that's the genealogy. Let me, let me walk you quickly through seven functions of this genealogy. The first one, the genealogy starts with Reuben. Reuben links Moses and Aaron all the way back to Israel, Jacob. That's important because that means that Moses and Aaron aren't hopping on the Israel bandwagon here with the promise of deliverance. They can trace their beginning, their place in the people all the way back to day one. The genealogy ends with Aaron's grandson, Phinehas. This tells us that this genealogy goes from the first day, Jacob, Israel, all the way to the book of Judges with Phineas. The genealogy, thirdly, honors Aaron and acknowledges the true priesthood. This is one of Moses' highlights throughout the book of Exodus. Fourth, it shows the reader Korah. That's the leader of the wilderness rebellion. And the fact that he's listed in this genealogy tells us that this was the basis for him saying, wait, 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 I should be a leader too. But we'll get to that later. It reminds the reader that Moses was from a priestly family and tribe. So he's qualified to perform priestly duties. He's qualified to set up the tabernacle. He's qualified to go in and offer the first sacrifice of ordination. It's important that Moses is of priestly family and tribe as he leads these people, as he shepherds the people of God. It reminds the reader that God's covenant faithfulness is not based on ethnic purity. Because in verse 15, we have the reference to a Canaanite woman. So you're not going to be provided for because of pure pedigree. There's a Canaanite woman in the line. Speaking of women, there are several wives of the priestly family that are mentioned. This serves to remind the people of the importance of proper godly marriage. This genealogy is helpful, but if we could boil it down to one theme, it tells the people that Moses and Aaron are appropriately fit for what God's sending them to do. God had providentially, generations before the promise of Exodus, had set up Moses and Aaron, fit them in the right spot among the people to do the thing he's commissioned them to do. Now, does that, re does that relate to us at all? Is that relevant to us at all? Has 
God also prepared us for the thing He's commissioned us to do. I am, uh, I am often concerned that most Christians feel unfit to deliver, to herald the message of deliverance in Christ. I think that that's a, a great temptation, a, a sin, that we are often burdened with, thinking, I, I, I don't speak well. I don't know how to respond to the objections of the atheist or the agnostic, and so I, I'm, just, I'm not that person. I'll, I'll, I'll support and I'll pray and I'll, I'll maybe send money, but I'm not the person who can have the conversation. The reason I think that that is unfortunate is because it's putting a lot of stock in our ability to see people saved. And what we're, what we're learning over and over in Exodus is that our abilities are not significant. Moses' abilities are not significant. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7, Paul's talking about this wonderful revelation that the church is in the covenant people of God, that that. Jews and Gentiles make up the church as God's unique people that he has saved. And he says this, of this good news, I was made a minister. Well, how was Paul made a minister to go to the Gentiles and tell them, good news, among God's covenant people, you are numbered. How does Paul become a minister of that good news. He says, according to the grace that was ministered to me, which has been given to me by the working of God's power. And what I understand for all of us from that text about Paul is Paul says, I proclaimed the good news of Jesus to the nations because the, the, the grace of God had been ministered to me. And so if the grace of God has been ministered to you, then you are fitly prepared to minister the grace of God to other people. If the light of the glory of Christ has shone on your heart, then share that reality with other people. And I just don't want you to be debilitated by the question of, am I fit? If the Spirit of God is ministered in your life, then you absolutely are fit. You are a vessel and a channel for gospel hope to those who are perishing. And I, I don't want you to spend a moment in reserved feelings of inadequacy. Because the necessity isn't me and it's not you. It's the Word, it's the Spirit dwelling in us, flowing through us. So here, he is the one who commissions, God is, commissions Moses to this task, commissions us likewise to a task. He is the one who says, Moses and Aaron have been prepared. And he says to the church, and so have you. The thing I've commissioned you to I have prepared you for. And then let's look at number three. Who 
is going to accomplish the commission. Look at verse 29 right away. The Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Go tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, everything I've said to you. And I make you God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. What's going to follow after those two verses, or after at least verse 28 and 29, is a lot of repetition. God has already told Moses all of this stuff. But the, the struggle to walk by faith that exists in Moses is constantly being carried about and uplifted by the repeated promise of God. I am the Lord. Go say what I said. I will make you God to him. The paragraph restates for us, this paragraph we're going to look at in a moment, one through five, restates who the hero of the Exodus will be. Who the hero of the Exodus will be. Because Moses is being tempted by his own pride to assume he's being called on to be the hero of the Exodus. And when he first shows up at Pharaoh's chamber and says, hey, I'm here to tell you let the people go. No. In fact, I'm going to make it worse for the people. I don't look like a hero at all. I look like a burden to the people now. And then God says, let me repeat. I am going to do this. This is, this is Abrahamic covenant repetition. This is, <laughs> this is Adamic covenant repetition. I am going to bring about my hero Christ through the seed of woman. Abraham, I already said in the garden I was going to crush the iniquity. I am going to send a, a snake crusher. And then he says to Abraham, I will bring a people through you. And through that people, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And so what we have in verses 1 through 5 is God repeating what it means to be the recipients of his covenant. Look at verse 1. We find right away, God will make Moses God in the eyes of Pharaoh. Jesus, uh, a psalmist repeats this, and Jesus repeats it in the Gospels. About everyone who's received the word of God. They are God to the people they minister to. Not in a blasphemous way, but in an ambassador or representative way. Look at verses 1 and 2. There's two references to Aaron. I will make Aaron a prophet for you. In verse 3, God will harden Pharaoh's heart to multiply his signs and wonders. God, in verse 4, will do great acts of judgment in Egypt. Verse 5, God will stretch out his hand and deliver the people. Verses 1 through 5 
are what what seems like what seems like a, a belabored point of repetition to Moses, doesn't it? Like how many times does God have to keep telling his servant that he is going to do what he sends Moses to do? Seems like, all right. You ever heard the expression, it's time to fish or cut bait? You ever heard that expression? Fish or cut bait. I mean, either catch something or just move on. And it seems a little bit like, like I would say that about Moses. I'd say, Moses, Moses. Either do what I said or I'm cutting bait here and moving on. But not our God. Not our God. Because our God continues to magnify the reality of his might by using such feeble and suffering servants like Moses, like me. 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul says, Pray for us that the word of the Lord might speed ahead and be honored. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. Listen, listen to Paul. He fits the category of what we would call a missionary. He says, pray for us. We minister to a lot of people who don't have any faith at all. But the Lord is faithful. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing the things that he has commanded. Now look in Exodus 7, verse 6. It's a summary of what's going to follow in the weeks ahead in our study. It simply says, they went and did what they were told to do, and this is how old they were when it happened. This is a summary not of just what's going to come in the next couple days. This is literally a summary of all the upcoming interactions between Moses, Aaron, and Pharaoh. They went and did what God said. They repeated what he had spoken, and they were this old, when it happened. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. God has given a charge to his people. God, Pastor Will prayed it this morning about returning to us in regeneration, in salvation, the purpose to which we were created. God is preserving meaning to life for his people. God has given us purpose, meaning, we call it commission. God has given commission to his people. Ours sounds like go into all the world and proclaim, preach, herald, make disciples, teach them to observe everything I have commanded I'm with you, always. But, we also hear very clearly, many will not believe. The God of this world will blind their eyes. As I just read from Thessalonians, Paul says, many don't have faith. So the question is, why go? Maybe it goes back to, why go to Iran and not Mexico. 
why go? And God, through this text, teaches us and reminds us. We speak the same grace that has been ministered to us. We are living testimony of intervening grace. And so we joyfully herald the word of grace. Let me... I've used this example before. If you read in your scripture that some people will not believe, there are hard-hearted people who will not believe. In fact, we know that the majority of all people who ever lived will reject Christ. And you could read that and become really disheartened and say, then why speak the word of Christ to people? And I've used this as an example. Um, the Packers play? They don't have a bye week, do they? The Packers play? Yeah, what time? Now? Oh, okay. Noon. All right, we're okay. Don't leave. We're on schedule here. Um, okay, Packers play at like at noon in, in the United States. That should be good. That should be good. Okay, so the Packers play at noon today. And you will do all sorts of things. You will, while the game is on, you will cheer and you will complain, and you will celebrate, and then when the game is over, you'll go to work tomorrow, and you'll talk about the game, and you'll rehearse it. You'll talk about the highlights and the lowlights, hopefully more highlights, but you'll talk about the game. And here's my question. Does all of that celebration, all of that cheering, all of that complaining, all of that rehearsing change the game at all? Not a bit. Maybe some of you just learned that. Yelling at the TV isn't changing it. It's not changing the game at all. So why do we do it? We're passionate about it. We're, we're joyful about it. And I, I just, I want to use that really trivial example of something that's true in our culture to answer the question, why would we go if our going might not change anything? Because the grace of God is something we're joyful about, passionate about, excited about, and so we say it wherever we're going. Will the message of salvation produce fruit in dark places? Will the message Pharaoh or Moses spoke to Pharaoh produce fruit? Will the message of Christ that you speak in dark places produce fruit? Again, I, I want to borrow from our commission. All authority on heaven and earth, Jesus says, is mine. Everything that is answers to me, Jesus says. So go, preach, baptize, make disciples, teach. For I am with you always. I have all the authority, and I am the one with you. God will send us as ambassadors of the Most High. God will turn hard hearts into new soft hearts by doing what he said he would do. He promised he would do in Ezekiel 36. God will stretch out his mighty arm of salvation. Psalm 98 verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. That sounds like Exodus 7. 
Look again at verse 3, just one more time. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Um, and I just want to say, it, it will be brief, and I, I hope without much confusion. We should not assume that every difficult place we speak the word of Christ in, where Christ is rejected, we should never assume that that's a failure. We should never assume that that fell short of the goal. I mentioned earlier in the opening that Moses struggles all of his life with a success syndrome. The punctuation of it is when he's told by God to go and speak to the rock so that the people could have something to drink. And Moses is frustrated. He goes and he hits the rock. Water comes out. Everyone is hydrated. And for that disobedience, success, disobedience, Moses is not allowed to go into the land of promise. Moses is going to struggle with his own terms of success. He's struggling with it here. And I think we're struggling with it. I know I do. I have shared the hope of Christ with aunt or uncle dozens of times. And here comes Thanksgiving, here comes Christmas, and he or she will be there again. And it's not making any difference. And I, I want to walk us back from that definition of success. Pharaoh's heart will be hard. And God will be displayed in his mighty acts in Pharaoh's hard-heartedness. It was not just a few years ago we walked through Romans 9, and Paul uses this story to explain the success of a gospel ambassador. He says this in Romans 9. So then, the results don't depend on our human will or our human work. The results depend on God. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this reason I've raised you up, so that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. What if God has a desire to show his wrath and make known his power, having endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Those vessels that have received the glory of God are even us, whom he has called. Not just Jews, but Gentiles also. What if God has vessels like Pharaoh who die in their rebellion? I know I'm getting ahead of the story. What if a vessel like Pharaoh who perishes in the Red Sea, all the while rebelling against the God who has made himself obvious to him. What if God has vessels like that so that we, who like Pharaoh, had once been rebels, can see the glory and the fame of God and that we did not die in our sin, but we have been ransomed from our sin and seated at the table of God 
as adopted children. What if? God's plan is for God to show the might of his hand. Then, I would say to you, go and say everything God told you to say. Go and say everything God told you to say. And so we come today, we worship. Our life is shaped by the blessing of Scripture. We're again encouraged by being together, but we're going to leave this room. And my application, my commission from Scripture would just be, go and say everything God has told you. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for um, the blessing of Scripture. You minister to us. You're near to us. It comforts and it guides us. It corrects us and shapes us. It refines us. It directs our path. The path that leads the church out of this room today will lead us into all sorts of places. And we believe from your word that it will lead us to people who have hard hearts and will not respond to the hope of Jesus Christ the salvation of Christ. So Lord, help us to understand from this text that you have commissioned us to go. You have prepared us. We're not dead in our sin. We're not blind. We're not deaf. We're prepared by your Spirit to go. And then we go in confidence. Go with endurance. We pray only to the Lord of the harvest for the fruit that you will produce. And in confidence, we know that you are the one who accomplishes the commission. Your servant Moses is not very gifted. And your word tells us that he's old. According to scripture, most people who are his age are already dead. And so there's nothing about his vitality, his persuasion, his eloquent speech. But he went and spoke what you said, and you accomplished what you purposed. Allow us to walk by that faith and to go and say everything you've told us to say. In Christ Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen.